0: listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. In light of today being Father's Day, I want to consider a passage out of Judges chapter 2. And this passage in a lot of ways helps us see the importance of pastoring and parenting in the home. It helps to see the importance of getting the gospel down into the next generation. And years ago, I listened to a a sermon by a pastor, a friend of mine named Ray Ortland, and he preached through this passage in particular. And his insight was just so, so helpful. In a lot of ways, he gave me a framework for seeing this passage that has always just sort of stuck with me. And and so that framework in this passage kind of flows in three parts. And I want to work through those three parts in this passage with you today. Uh, There's a warning in this passage, there's an invitation in this passage, and then there's an encouragement in this passage. A warning, an invitation, and an encouragement. So let's start with the warning. The warning. So let's take a step back and just ask the question, uh, what's going on in this passage? Uh, The people of Israel have just crossed over into the promised land. And in the promised land now, verse seven sets the stage with this one little phrase. Uh, Verse seven says, through all the days of Joshua. Now you could think about Joshua. He's a huge, important figure uh, in the life of the people of Israel. And in the book of Judges, he is a sort of yardstick. Uh, Joshua is uh, that person who sort of sets the pace for what faithfulness to God looks like, and by which you can measure and sort of judge every other leader you find in the book of Judges. So it says, through all the days of Joshua, and then it goes on to say, and through all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Uh, These were Joshua's contemporaries who who lived beyond Joshua's life, and Joshua and, and these elders who outlived him, they saw and were were witness to these amazing works of God like God parting the Red Sea and manna coming down from heaven that's Joshua and his generation and these elders who outlived him And during these days, during the days of Joshua and these elders, the people of God, uh, they they faithfully served God. Uh, This is what verse 7 is uh, telling us. Uh, They were loyal to God, trusting God. And then you get to verse 8. And verse 8 lets us know uh, that Joshua and the elders died. And then you get to verse 10. And in particular, the second half of verse 10. And here's what we read. And there arose another generation after them. After Joshua and the elders, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, from that point forward in this passage, all hell breaks loose. Look at verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Now, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, which was kind of their female counterparts, they were the false gods, the idols of the day. And this passage in verse 11 is letting us know that uh, the people of God, rather than relying on God for their security and their help and their defense and their uh, fertility and, and their life, Uh, Rather than relying on God for those things, uh, they bowed down to and were relying on and worshiping Baal for their help and defense and for the protection of their life. Uh, Then you get to verse 12. And they, the people of God, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now think about the, the, the God that we see here, the God of their fathers. This was the God who had delivered them from Egypt had fed them uh, literally bread from heaven, manna coming down from heaven to feed them in the wilderness. This was the God who brought them into the promised land. And in verse 12, the the people of God now, uh, in, in a lot of ways, put their finger up in the air toward God, and they just turned their back on God. And then we continue reading. They went out after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, how would God respond to them in this? Verse 14 shows us. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Now, anger is an attribute of God, but I'm so thankful that it is a provoked attribute of God. You never see it in God unless we've grieved the tender heart of God through our sin and rebellion. And that's what's happening here. Here we see that the tender heart of God is provoked as he gives his people, Israel, over to ruin and misery. So what do we learn here in this passage? Well, I think it, under this heading of a warning, it gives us several insights that we need to consider here. And here's the first insight. This passage shows us that we're always one generation away. We are always one generation away from all out spiritual rebellion against God. From just all out rebellion, from complete spiritual darkness and the triumph of evil. We're just one generation away from that. We're always just one generation away from all out rebellion against God. And let that just sober us for a moment. Uh, Consider verse 10 again. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, this passage takes us from one generation And this generation was marked by faithfulness. It's Joshua and these elders who who were faithful to God. It takes us from that one generation to the next generation, to generation number two, not generation number three or five or six or 10. No, it's just the next generation. It's one generation to the next generation and the next generation did not know God and the works of God. Now you might circle that word know in verse 10. That word probably doesn't mean that, that they didn't know about God or his works. I don't think that's what it means. I think they were aware of God parted the Red Sea and, and uh, their, their, their forefathers ate um, manna from heaven. I, I think they were aware of those things, but that word know is much uh, deeper and more personal. That word know is a way of saying that, uh, they, they, that God was no longer precious to them. His works in their life were no longer central to them. Uh, they just uh, These things just didn't mean much to them anymore. Uh, their hearts weren't awakened to the beauty and reality of God. Their, 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 their spiritual eyes just grew dim. And when that collective generation forgot God, hell was literally unleashed. All out spiritual rebellion ensued. Uh, this, this complete spiritual darkness descended upon the people of God. Uh, evil began to triumph throughout the people of God. Now, what, what is the scriptures trying to show us in this story? Well, I, I think this is the lesson it's trying to teach us. That every generation, regardless of how great the work of God was in that particular generation, that every generation is always one generation from hell being unleashed. That, that every generation is always one generation away From hell being unleashed. This passage, in a lot of ways, is a microcosm of the pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament. And here's the pattern we see throughout the Old Testament there's disobedience. The people of God disobey God. And then when they disobey, God brings discipline. So it's disobedience that leads to discipline. God comes and he corrects them. And normally that correction is painful. It sends the people of God into a painful misery where in their misery, they cry out to God in desperation. That's the third part of the cycle. Disobedience to discipline to then desperation. They're crying out to God. And when they cry out to God, God meets them with deliverance. That's the pattern we see throughout the Old Testament. Disobedience disobedience, discipline, then you've got desperation, then deliverance. Now, the question when I look at that pattern throughout the Old Testament is, why is it that the people of God so quickly go from deliverance over here, God does this mighty work in their life, but they go from deliverance back into disobedience so quickly. Why is that? And I think that's the second insight this passage shows us. Why do we go from deliverance to disobedience so quickly? Well, here's the insight. We are born ready to worship Baal. We are born ready. We come out of the womb ready to worship false gods. Now, part of what this passage shows us is that all generation one, Joshua and the elders, all generation one had to do was nothing was just sort of get out of the way. All generation number one had to do was nothing for generation two to get on their faces before false gods and worship them. All they had to do was nothing. All they had to do was just sort of get out of the way and generation number two was worshiping false gods. Now, this is showing us something about human nature east of Eden. Uh, Due to the sin of our first parents, darkness has spread into the heart of every human being. Because of Genesis chapter three, we lost our native love and trust of God. Listen to one pastor describe this. He says that we are all born both adorable and criminal. Like we come out of the womb and yes, we are adorable, but we're also criminal. He goes on to say, we typically grow up to be fairly nice people, but the truth is we are nice, evil people and we prove it again and again. He he goes on to say, our precious, adorable children are born ready to worship Baal. And our darling adorables, our newborn little babies that are so precious, our darling adorables are tomorrow's pagans. That is so true. When Augustine, an early church father, talked about original sin, how um, that sort of spiritual darkness has infected every one of our hearts. He he points to kids, our darling adorables. And and I love what he says. He says, well, I actually kind of hate it too. Uh, But he says, if that sweet baby, that that newborn little baby had the strength and capacity, uh, they wouldn't just cry to their mother for milk. Uh, No, they would turn around, grab their mother by the throat and demand that milk. That is the sort of spiritual darkness that has invaded every human heart. And that's what this passage is showing us, that we aren't born open to God. We are born closed to God, that we don't come out of the womb ready to love Jesus. We come out of the womb spring-loaded to reject Jesus, to rebel against Jesus. And here's the third insight. The third insight, in light of the first two, the third insight is this. In light of we're all born ready to worship Baal, here's the third insight. Every generation, every generation has to be evangelized with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every generation has to be freshly taught the gospel again. We cannot assume that the next generation will just somehow somehow sort of just start to love Jesus. We cannot assume that. We cannot assume that the fresh way that God met one generation is enough for the next generation. We cannot assume that the faith of one generation will somehow mysteriously just sort of show up in the next generation. We cannot assume those things. And this passage proves that. Joshua and his generation experienced God in a real and deep and vital sort of way. But their experiences of God were not enough for their children. And why is that? It's because every generation comes into the world with a dark heart. So every generation must have a fresh encounter with the living God of the Bible. Every generation. This passage is showing us what will happen Not what might happen, but what will happen if we adults are okay with our kids sort of passing through life without entering into a living, breathing, vibrant relationship with Jesus. Now that's the warning of this passage. It is just, in a lot of ways, a a siren. It's, It's an alarm helping us see the danger we're all in. We're all one generation away from all out spiritual rebellion. That's the warning. But now, the invitation. Embedded into virtually every warning from God is an invitation from God. Um, You probably remember the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. And Jonah walks reluctantly into the heart of this godless city. Um, Think New York City, think Times Square Uh, that's where Jonah walks into this huge city and he just sort of preaches a sermon right there in Times Square. And here's his sermon. It's really short and sweet. Here's his sermon. Um, Hey, people, in 40 days, God is going to destroy you. That was his sermon. Um, It was a very seeker-sensitive type sermon. Hey, in 40 days, you're all gonna be dead. That was Jonah's sermon. And miraculously, the people of Nineveh fall on their faces. They repent of their sin and they turn back to God. It was an amazing moment. And in Jonah chapter three, verse 10, we read this. When God saw what they did, the people of Nineveh, turning from their sin and coming back to him, when when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it rather than destroying Nineveh, God blessed Nineveh. Now that informs the way we should read warnings in the scriptures. Embedded into every warning from God is an invitation from God. It's an invitation from God to say, it doesn't have to be that way. If you'll open yourself up to me, if you'll turn from your sin and come back to me, I will bless you and not destroy you. And every warning is that sort of an invitation from God. And that is also true in the warning that we see in Judges chapter two. Uh, embedded into this warning is this invitation that you, you don't, this, your next generation, the, the, the following generation doesn't have to be marked by rebellion, by spiritual darkness, by evil triumphing throughout that generation. This passage offers an invitation It's an invitation to the church of Jesus Christ to stand between the next generation and the God-forsaking ruin that their hearts want. That's the invitation embedded into Judges chapter two. And that's also an invitation to every parent. Welcome to the job of every parent. Parent, you are pastors. God has entrusted to you a little church called your family. God's entrusted that little church to you. And the primary job of every parent, every pastor, is to stand between the next generation and the God-forsaking ruin that their hearts by nature want. Uh, Parents, think about what you're doing in your home. Uh, Think about the role of parenting. Uh, Your kiddo, your, your child is a beautiful image bearer of God. They reflect the heart of God in so many ways. And God has made that little boy or that little girl, he has made them in such a way where their hearts are made to glorify God and to enjoy Jesus forever. That's what what they are made to do with their lives. And that little image bear that God has entrusted to you is either going to spend forever with Jesus doing the very thing they were made to do, glorifying God and enjoying Jesus forever, or they are going to spend an eternity away from Jesus forever in hell. Gosh, that just feels so sobering. And here's the problem that every parent has to face. That little image bearer of God comes out of the womb, mistaking God for an enemy. When they, when they come out of the womb and they look at God, he, he appears to them just by their sort of native vision, affected by sin, not as a gracious, good God. He appears to them as an enemy that they cannot trust and they have to avoid. They arrive in your care as a parent, spring-loaded to reject Jesus and embrace ruin. So the mission field of every parent starts right there in the crib. That's where the mission field starts. God's entrusted kids, all of our parents, God has entrusted kids into your care so that you can stand in the gap in front of them, so that you can teach them about Jesus, so that you can teach them that that the very God that they think is against them is really a good and gracious God and dad who is for them. You have the privilege of modeling a vibrant, joyful, trusting, open relationship to Jesus in front of your kids so that by the grace of God, you can pass down just a deep, rich, vibrant love of Jesus to them. One of the things we learn throughout the scriptures is that the Bible over and over and over again shows us. That the primary link between one generation's vibrant love of Jesus and the next generation's vibrant love of Jesus is the parent-to-child link. That is the primary link through which the good news of Jesus gets from one generation to the next. Now, let me clarify. The parent-child link is not the only link. So, getting the gospel to the next generation is the responsibility of our entire church family. You may be empty nesters, you may be married and never had kids, you may be single uh, without kids. And this would apply to you. It's our whole church family embraces the responsibility to get the good news of Jesus down to the next generation. This is why every time when we do baby dedications, uh, we do a responsive reading together uh, where we get to affirm as a church, we feel this responsibility. Here's what we say to parents every time as a church family that we say to parents when they dedicate their children. We as a a church say this to them. We believe that raising godly children is a church-wide command. And in this holy moment, you as parents and we as your church family covenant together to redeem the next generation and to be faithful in handing down the gospel of Jesus Christ. We as a church family receive that responsibility from Jesus, We don't want there to be a single kid in our church family who the good news of Jesus isn't passed down from this generation right down on into him. We don't want there to be any kid in our neighborhood, in our apartment complex, in the city that we're doing ministry in. We don't wanna see a single kid miss the good news of Jesus. So it is a church-wide responsibility. And we do this because the parent-child link isn't the only link. There's also a church responsibility in that. But the parent-child link is the primary link. It is the primary way that the good news of Jesus goes from generation one to generation two. So in light of that, I wanna take a moment to look at all of our fathers or aspiring fathers and to say to you really clearly that your role in getting the good news of Jesus to the next generation from you down into the hearts of your kids. Fathers, your role in that is indispensable. It is critical. It is crucial. Your life and your voice forms a massive part of the link to get the good news of Jesus to the next generation. Now, if you're a father or an aspiring father, I'm about to read an extended quote uh, by a guy named Doug Wilson in his book, Father Hunger. I just want you to listen really carefully to these words as I read uh, 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 an extended quote here. He says, most boys grow up, uh, growing up need to be taught their strength as when they are horsing around with their younger siblings. They are bigger and stronger and much more influential, let us say, than they think they are. But the need for teaching this lesson doesn't disappear when boys get past the age of horsing around. In their families, men are much more important, much more crucial, much more influential than they believe themselves to be. Now, all fathers, listen to this next line. It is the easiest thing in the world for a man to grow up, get married, have kids, and still think of himself the same way he did when he was a boy. Now, men, I want you to listen to that for a moment. He is saying that it's so easy for you uh, to get married, have some kids, and never, for it never to dawn on you how big and influential your voice is inside of your family. It is so easy for you to think that there's a lot of voices in your family, and your voice is just sort of one of a lot of voices. And I want to look at every father out there and say, that is not true. You are a father, a father. And as a father, God has given you a unique voice, and there is no other voice on the planet that can replace the unique voice that He has given you in the heart of your son and daughters. It's a unique voice. So he goes on to say, words of reassurance, offered or withheld, are monumental in a child's growth. Words of encouragement or exhortation or patient teaching are the same. When a child has grown up under the devastation of unremitting harshness or the devastation of neglect, the one thing a father may not say is that, you know, it just wasn't that big of a deal. He goes on to say, Of course it was a big deal. Of course it was. Fathers, your sons and daughters will, by the grace of God, be praying the Lord's Prayer for the rest of their life. And do you remember the first two words of the Lord's Prayer? Here's how the Lord's Prayer, when when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, this is his first two words, our Father. Those are the first two words. And, And every father needs to feel this deep in your bones. That your son or your daughter is going to feel something deep down in their heart when they say those two words. And what they feel deep down there in their heart was first put there by you, their earthly father. Your kids will know you as father long before they're going to know God as father. And what they know of you as father will shape how they see and think of God as father. That your fathering is teaching them about God. So in fatherhood, we are, not, we are not playing around with light things, but with heavy, weighty, huge realities. And now he goes on to say this, one more paragraph. He says, fathers are, are speaking about God the Father constantly. They do not have the option of shutting up about God the Father. What they are saying may be true or false, but they are not in a position where they can refuse to say anything. A father who just sits and stares, a father who is down at the office all the time, a father who deserts the family, all of them are speaking. Every one of them is saying something about God the Father all the time. A father who teaches his son to swing a bat, a father who listens to his daughter explain why Peter Rabbit should have obeyed. A father who kisses their mom on the lips. A father who reads for hours to the family in the evening. All of them are speaking too. And fathers, God is inviting you today into the gap uh, to stand between your kids, the next generation, and the ruin that their hearts want That is an invitation from God to us today. And may we, fathers, parents, fathers and mothers, may we say yes to God today that we will faithfully stand in that gap, that we will receive that invitation from God. That's the invitation. And we'll finish here with the encouragement, with the encouragement. Now I wanna just step back from this passage and make sure that we're seeing it in the wider context of the scriptures. We know that we do not have the power in and of ourselves to sort of pull ourselves up by those bootstraps and just sort of do better. We know we don't have the power to do that. But because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, thankfully, the Holy Spirit lives in us, dwells in us, resides in us, and the Holy Spirit loves to shine brightly in our weakness. He loves to empower us. He loves to take us to new places of repentance, new places of obedience. He loves to meet us in our dependence and desperation with the very grace that we need. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit does that is by setting before us just a banquet feast of promises from the scriptures to nourish our soul, to feed our soul, and to encourage our soul to to move into this invitation from God. And let me just rehearse a few of these promises in the scriptures. Listen to this out of Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah, looking to the future, says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. I I will pour my spirit. This is God saying, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants they talking about the next generation our descendants they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams then one sons and daughters that down the the line then one will say i am the lords and another will call on the name of jacob and another will write on his hand just a big tattoo right there on his hand the lords that's that, that that's who i who's i am i am his servant the lords and, and name Himself by the name of Israel. Don't we want that for the next generation? Gosh, isn't that a beautiful promise that we can hold on to? Isaiah chapter 54 All your children shall be taught by the Lord. Gosh, don't we want the Lord to do that for our kids? All of your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. That's the kingdom Jesus is bringing with him or how about Zechariah chapter 8 and the streets of the, of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets that's what a church should look like full of, of little boys and little girls enjoying Jesus and enjoying one another or how about 2 Timothy chapter three where Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, but as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, I love that phrase, knowing from whom you learned it. Do you know one of the reasons that that Jesus is just so special to me? One of the reasons is just because of who I learned about him from. One of the reasons Jesus is so precious to me is because I had a grandpa who told me stories about the Lord's work in his life. I have a Bible in my office um, that was his, and I've got all these notes in the margin. I've got a few tapes of him teaching a Sunday school class, just teaching the Bible faithfully. One of the reasons Jesus is so precious to me is because my mom and dad passed down a vibrant love of Jesus to me. Because I've had pastors pass down a vibrant love of Jesus because I've had so many people in my life walk beside me, investing in me, passing on to me a vibrant love of Jesus. So Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you have learned it. And then he goes on, and how from childhood, from, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And if you're a single mom, let this encourage you. Uh, you know, we don't know a lot about Timothy's dad, but from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse five, we do know something about his grandma and his mom. And here's what we know about his grandma and his mom. They had a deep rich, vibrant faith in Jesus. And what his mom possessed, she was able to pass right on into Timothy. And Timothy now has this bright, rich, vibrant love of Jesus. He is a church planter and pastor. And all that came right through a grandma, right through a mom, right into Timothy's heart. And parents, this is what God is calling us to. This is what he has equipped you for. This is what he's moving you into, to move you right into the gap between your kids, the next generation, and the God-forsaking ruin their hearts want. And I just want to look at you today and, and by the grace of God, look at you and say, you can do that. Empowered by the spirit of God, you can step into that gap and be that person in their life. I want to close with a story from John Patton's life. John Patton was a missionary uh, to what uh, we would now consider the island of Vanatu. And he and his wife went there as missionaries in the middle of the 1800s and it was brutal for them. In a span of about two months, he lost his wife, his precious wife. Um, and, and then soon thereafter, he lost his newborn baby boy. And to complicate everything else, he was under constant attacks from the, from the native people there that he was seeking to evangelize. And it led one biographer to ask the question, where in the world did his sort of perseverance and his, and his courage, where did it come from? And the biographer goes on to, to answer by saying, uh, here's where it came from, his dad, that's where it came from. And the tribute that John Patton gives to his dad is worth the price of his autobiography. It's just amazing. Every time I read it, it just makes my heart cry out to the Lord, God, would you you make me into that sort of a man? And there was this small room in the house that John Patton grew up in, and their family called it the closet. And as a general rule, the kind of the the normal pattern in their family's life was that um, every evening after dinner, his dad would go into the closet and there he would meet with God and just pour out his heart to God in prayer. And what happened in that closet left a lasting impact on all 11 of, of John Patton's siblings, all of them. And in particular, it left an impact on John. And this is how he went on to describe it. He said, Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory, if they were all blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God, just his dad pouring out his heart to God, that they would hurl back all doubt with this victorious appeal. He, talking about his dad, John is saying, he, my dad walked with God, so why would I not walk with God? He walked with God, why not I? And he went on to say, how much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand, when on his knees, just Picturing his dad on his knees, when on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal and domestic need. He said, when my dad was doing that, he said, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior. And we learned to know and love him, the living Savior, as our divine friend. And my friends, that is the difference a dad can make. Will you pray with me? And I want to give you just a moment there where you are to let the Spirit of God press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And to all of our fathers today, for for every man who wants to become a great father to his children, to do that, we first have to be fathered by God. And this is true of moms. It's true of dads. We first have to be fathered by God because it's in being continually fathered by God that we have the resources to to father or to parent in a way that reflects God. So we have to be engaged in this deep, rich, vibrant relationship with our dad. And would that describe you today? Is there a deep, rich, vibrant relationship with God Is that true of you? And for many of us, our first step today is to come into the family of God. And the Bible is so clear how we do that. How we go from orphaned to an adoptive son or daughter of God. It's it's us turning from our sin and in faith, throwing our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's coming to God, offering ourselves to God, saying that we are trusting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make us right with you. God, we are trusting that, that we can come into your family, be adopted by you, our good God and dad, because of Jesus. And for whoever will come to, to God like that, his arms are wide open today. So there where you are, you, you can pray. That, that prayer, the best you know how expressing God, I want to give my life to you. I am trusting in the work of Jesus to make me right with you. God, here I am, save me. And right now, wherever you are, God will do that. He he will do that. So God, would you now talk to us? Would you speak to us? God, would would you interact with the deepest places of our heart? God, will you walk us into a deeper relationship with you? God, will you teach us more and more what it means to be fathered by you? What it means to be a son or daughter who trusts in you, the good heart of our dad. And Father, I pray that that then would would turn in us in such a way where we would become Jesus-reflecting fathers, Jesus reflecting mothers. God, where we would stand in the gap, we would stand between the next generation and the ruin their hearts just innately want. God, we help us? We you give us courage? Would you give us faithfulness? Would you give us all the grace we need to be those sort of men and women? And it's in the good name of Jesus we pray, amen.